I want to start off by saying thank you to Matt, to Nate, to Scott, to Mike, to everybody who was involved in putting this event together. It is such a privilege for me to be here. You really have no idea. I also want to thank uh, Bishop Fernandez for allowing me to speak to the men of his flock. That's a great gift that I've been given, and I take it very, very seriously, especially in the season of Lent. You know, the word Lent means, or at least in English, is oftentimes translated as a season of penitence, as a, as a season of really looking inside our souls and wondering what it was that we've done to offend God and reflecting on that and offering almsgiving and fasting and penance in order to atone for those things. But the word in Greek, metanoia, means changing the chip. It's basically a paradigm shift, a change of heart and mind, and that's the season that we're in. And I come to you this morning, brothers, just like St. Paul did with weakness and fear and trembling because, not because I'm nervous, although, frankly, in a room this size, you wouldn't blame me, okay? There's thousands of guys here, some of you I've met, maybe others I'll meet before the end of the day, but I come to you in that weakness and fear and trembling because I hope that from today, and my prayer is from today, that you take from this time together not persuasive words, not lessons from men, no matter how gifted any of them have been, and they have been gifted today, and I hope you appreciate that as much as I do, but I hope that you take from today Another example of the power of God, the power of God in your hearts and in this place right now. That is my prayer. I have to also confess to you that I struggled with putting together the message for today. I really did. You know, you, you kind of do things like this, although this is the biggest room I've ever spoken in. So congratulations. Give yourselves a round of applause for being here. But I... But I did struggle thinking about, well, Lord, what is it that you want me to share with these men? And like with everything you can imagine, we have our confidence things, the things that we're maybe good at doing, right? Anybody who goes to the gym, there's always a guy or two who's there doing bicep exercises, and God bless him, but it's all he does is biceps, right? And he's got massive arms, but the rest of him is not necessarily there. But for me, I had those, I have those things that I love to talk about that I really feel that I have a ready answer for and that kind of thing. But the Holy Spirit answered my request for the message to share with you through my wife. And those of us who are married know that the Holy Spirit uses our relationship with our wives as a way to communicate with us. That's the whole reason he set up vocations the way that he did. Marriage, the religious life, the priesthood. It's a channel of communication between the Holy Spirit and us. And my wife, God bless her, she's right now in Los Angeles at the Religious Education Congress presenting herself. But she said several weeks ago, she said, why don't you talk to them about providence? Oops, let me back browse that real quick. Why don't you talk to them about providence? Now, there was a time... I have to be honest with you, brothers. There was a time when I thought Providence was a city in Rhode Island. 
And then maybe a little bit further on my spiritual walk, I kind of thought Providence may have been a, you know, a network of hospitals and health services. And then maybe as I evolved even further, I thought, well, I know what Providence is. We are men. We provide. It's what heads of household does. It's what a head of household does. But it took quite a while. And frankly, the Holy Spirit is still working in me. That's the beauty of doing these things. You know, you come out here, somebody asked me, what are you going to talk about? I said, I don't know. I've never given this talk before. I want to leave room for the Holy Spirit to actually weigh in. And he always does because I come out trying to teach and preach. And then God is forming me. And so I'm hoping I can take something from this talk as well. But it was a long time before I came to the understanding that a proper understanding of providence is the ordering of all events in the universe so the end for which they were created might be realized. The ordering of all events within the universe so the end for which they were created might be realized. But it's not what I wanted to talk to you about. That wasn't my message. That wasn't my confidence move. And my wife said providence, and so I stuck with it. If you enjoy this talk, you have her to thank, and if you don't, you probably still have me to blame. But why was this a struggle for me? Well, because I know personally the pitfalls of a misunderstanding of providence. I know personally those pitfalls because, my brothers, that was me. I didn't think providence was God's vision of the universe that he set in motion with his perfect will. I thought providence came from me. I thought I was the one that had to provide. I had the one to, to, be, to get up and raise my children and go to work and earn a living and be promoted. And I thought I was doing that under my own steam. I was born into a Catholic family, thanks be to God. My family, my parents were also on their own journey, just like everybody's here. They were all on their own spiritual journey. And I was born into a Hispanic household. Latinos in the house? All right, we got a few. Bienvenidos. I was born into a Latino, Hispanic household. And the good thing about that is that the faith was really woven into every aspect of my life. Everywhere I looked and everywhere I went, the faith was present, and that was a good thing. But there was a downside to what I later discovered was a real cultural Catholicism. And the downside that I experienced was that when the faith is woven into every aspect of your culture, sometimes it disappears. And that's what happened with me. My father, and we'll talk a little bit about him, but my father brought us up because of his job in a number of different countries. I was born in California, but before I got to high school, I had lived in Mexico City, in Buenos Aires, in Argentina, where our Holy Father is from, in Caracas, in Venezuela, and then in the Caribbean. And so I got a chance to experience our faith in really its rich, beautiful diversity, properly understood. But all in that time, growing up and coming up in Catholic countries, I viewed the faith as just another custom, we had our food, we had our music, we had our unique traditions as a culture, and we had the church. So the faith really disappeared for me, if I'm being frank. And as I got older, I faded away. 
I completely faded away. It wasn't until I returned to the United States, came back to live in the U.S., that something really unusual happened because, you know, some would say we live in a post-Christian country even. I've heard that mentioned. But it was coming here where I had to choose my Christianity. It was a tangible thing that I had to select on my own. And that really stood out to me. But I faded away. And I got trapped by all of the material things that exist in this world. I got trapped in the, the trap of pornography. I got trapped in the trap of materialism. I got trapped in all of those things. If you would have asked me, I probably would have never said that God doesn't exist. But I was not living a Christian life by any stretch of the imagination. And then I decided, well, I'll take my gifts because I was good at communications, that kind of thing. And I was also good at what we heard earlier from the bishop at selling. So I said, well, what's a good combination of selling something that's intangible, selling a story? So I decided that I would take my talents to Los Angeles and get into the entertainment industry, the secular entertainment industry. And you can imagine, and I've had a number of conversations already today, what that's like. Because there's a lot of good people there, but there's also a lot of people who value lesser gods. And as a result of that, you have an entire industry that drives a tremendous amount of cultural influence in our country in which I was participating. And I would turn a blind eye to the things that I knew were not building up the people of God, to the things that were not in keeping with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I kind of walk through with blinders on. Occasionally, maybe later in my entertainment industry career, I would say, well, maybe we shouldn't do that. Or here's another idea. But I was part of the problem. I was part of the reason why the entertainment industry is the way that it is. And my brothers, as I went through this career, with every promotion and every increase in responsibility and every additional resource that was brought my way until I was managing hundreds of millions of dollars and hundreds of people and making seven figures on an annual basis, these things began to accrue like barnacles. They began to, you know, the reason barnacles get scraped off is because they weigh the vessel down and because they corrode it. But every single one of those things was a fresh barnacle, a fresh accretion on this ship of my life. And I felt that, but I tried to paper over it with other things. Oh, I just have to eat better. Oh, I just need some quiet time. I'm from LA, so you just need to meditate. You need some yoga. You got to read this book. Those were the solutions that I looked for during that time. Until thanks be to God, God graced me with a thorn in my side, just like St. Paul. And in that weakness, in my weakness, God's power was made manifest. And the weakness that I was given to contend with is about of insomnia like you read about. I know that if I asked you to raise your hands if you've had insomnia, I'd see a lot of hands come up. But I was given this gift, which I see now, of insomnia for nine straight months where I would sleep maybe once or twice a week. 
And all this time, with increasing levels of responsibility, with increasing pressure, with the increasing desire to have to answer every question, to have to be there in every meeting, to have to be on my ascendant career track, and putting all of those things before God. Until one day, three o'clock in the morning, after downing a half a bottle of Benadryl, because I had heard, you know, I, well, I didn't even hear, I saw the effect that Benadryl had sometimes on my kids when they had allergies, and I'd heard, you know, you could take some Benadryl. So I went to the store, and I, I was on a business trip, and I downed a half a bottle of Benadryl just so I could go to sleep because I hadn't slept for three days, and I had a board meeting the next day where I was supposed to know everything. And I was supposed to speak with authority and with credibility to investors and to my own team that looked up to me to help guide them on their career track. And I was on my knees, three o'clock in the morning in a hotel room in Miami, crying, just crying. And it was at that moment that something broke, something changed in me. This was about 15 years ago now. Something began to change where I realized, and I didn't come to the fullness of the understanding that it wasn't me driving, it was God driving, but something began to change. And in that moment, I just took the things off of my shoulders, this desire to want to provide and want to be there for my family and always have employment and always have successive uh, benefits and more things, and I set it aside. And in that moment, God, because he's merciful and because he's super patient, if you ever need an example of how patient God is, just come talk to me. But because he's so merciful and because he's so patient, things began to change. So my understanding of providence was mixed up. And that's one of the reasons that I want to share this talk with you today. The word providence comes from the Latin providere. And if you break that word up, pro means before and videre means to see. It is a foresight. It is a prevision is what it is. The way that I thought about this or came to understand it was because I raised kids. I've got, I got five kids, one in heaven, four here on earth. And I remember chasing them around, especially my boys, around the carpet. You know, they would start crawling and moving. I'm sure this has happened to all of you who have sons or daughters. And eventually, they would start going towards the electrical outlet or going towards, I don't know, a pair of scissors or a glass that was on the table. And what I did was I got, you know, took a couple steps ahead of them and grabbed that and pulled it out of the way. I saw where they were headed. I didn't interfere with their free will. They were still moving. But I saw where they were headed. And I acted on that. And that's an example of the way that God works in our lives. Because his foresight, his prevision, his looking around the corner is divine. And it comes from a place of love. Another way to think about this divine prevision is a divine caregiving. A divine caregiving. That is what this idea really means, providence. Because, my brothers, we are made, and we've heard it many, many times, in the image and likeness of God. Just like you might resemble your brother or resemble your father or your cousin, 
we have a semblance to God, and each of us lives that semblance as men. Each of us is marked with that resemblance. And we're marked with that resemblance first as sons, and then we're marked with that resemblance as fathers. And it doesn't matter if you don't have biological children, because we've got lots of spiritual fathers here in this room. And even if you're not ordained or active in ministry, God has given you stewardship over souls. And the way that you're effective in that stewardship, in participating in that providence, is because we're able to accept and live out that participation with God as men. You know, the very first person that lived out that resemblance of provider and protector and steward in my life was my father. This is a picture of him when he was in his late 20s. And my father was an immigrant. He came from South America, from Colombia, just on the rare chance. Any Colombians in the house? All right. Excellent. Um, my father came from Colombia in the late 60s, and he has a typical immigrant story. He came with very little money, landed in South Florida at the time, and the money ran out very quickly, and essentially he was homeless, and he lived on the street for a period of time until he met up with other people and eventually couch surfed for a period of time, and then that became a room, and then that became his own place. And all along that, he was looking to save up enough money to fly back to Colombia, marry the woman that he loved, my mother, and bring her back to the United States to live the American dream. And that's precisely what he did. And you know, my father taught me a lot of things that the Holy Spirit would use to give me a better understanding of providence and my role in participation in providence. He taught me a lot of things. But remember, we learn and we experience providence first as sons and then as fathers. And I'd like to share with you some of those lessons that my father gave me in my sonship, some of the ways that he was protector, provider, and steward participating in the divine providence through these lessons of sonship. We know from St. Paul I gave you milk because you weren't ready for solid food. That was me. I mean, that was me far beyond being a kid, but that was certainly me as a kid. And so I'd love to share with you a couple of stories that were stories for me, lessons of sonship, and I ask the Holy Spirit that he give you whatever you can take from these lessons. My brother and I, I have an older brother, two years older than I am, and when we were about eight or nine years old, we got into an argument. Now, we got into arguments before, but this was the first time for some reason, because sometimes I'm kind of spirited, but for some reason, I decided to just load up and just give him a haymaker as, as hard as I could. And I'm the younger brother, right? My, bro my father saw this take place and was completely scandalized, but he didn't say anything. But I could tell there was something going on. Like right away, I knew that I had crossed a line that I had never crossed before, and my dad was going to do something about it. But my father was very creative. And so what he did was he walked over into the little cupboard or the junk drawer, whatever it was, and he pulled out some masking tape. And then he told us to hold hands. 
and then he taped our hands together. And here's the kicker. He said, now we've got to run some errands. And so that day, I went to supermarkets, I went to shopping malls, I rode in cars, I walked out in public, taped to my brother, taped to him. Lesson of sonship, obviously, brotherhood. This is the person that God has given me to share my experience and my upbringing with me intimately. And I need to be serious about that and treat it like the gift that it is. But God wasn't done. God wasn't done with that lesson there because all of us here are brothers. I know we hear that. I know we hear that and we go, yeah, brother, brother in Christ. No, we're literally brothers, literally. Baptized into Jesus Christ, we die to our old life. We are sons of the Father. That makes us brothers, literally brothers. Servant of God, Dorothy Day, who some of you may know, was a communist. And when she started to come into the church, she tried to explain to her previously communist community why she was joining the church. The church was the great enemy of the communist cause. We kind of look at it in reverse, but nevertheless, it was a struggle. And her words were so wise. She said to them, comrade, we call ourselves brother. There is no brotherhood of man without the fatherhood of God. If we don't have a common father, how can we be brothers? It's as simple as that. And the penny dropped for a lot of those former communists, and a, a number of them joined her in her work. Brotherhood. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A couple of years later, one of our relatives gave my brother on a birthday this shirt. I tried to find the most 70s shirt I could find. It was ugly, trust me, even for the 70s, which I don't know what happened in the 70s, but it's like, you know, the Holy Spirit said, I'll be back in a little bit, you know? He just kind of left in general, okay? Fashion, he left art, he left a lot of things. But um, my brother got given this shirt as a gift, and the person who gave it to him didn't have a lot of money. It was a relative. He probably worked really hard to buy him that shirt, and he refused to wear it. Refused. I'm not putting that on. And going to school in that? Forget it. Not happening. Now, you would think a kid who was taped to his brother a couple of years before would realize that my father was going to use this as an opportunity to issue another lesson of sonship, another appreciation of the way that we live out stewardship and provide and cooperate with God's providence. So my dad said, no, you are putting it on. And he kicked and screamed, but he did put it on. He went to school, came back. Next day came, my dad went into his room, pulled the same shirt out of the dirty laundry and said, here you go. Here's your outfit for today. He did that for a week straight. A week straight. The lesson that I took from that as a younger brother is the reality of gratitude. That we have to be thankful in all circumstances, my brothers, good or bad, but God was not done. God was not done because today, my brother is a Benedictine monk, and he wears the same thing every day. <laughs> but
But the biggest lesson that my father taught me was in dying. This picture was taken 10 days before he passed away. He had contracted or developed stage four lung cancer. I was in the room with him at the oncologist. I happened to be visiting him and my mom in Florida. And he said, why don't you come along to the doctor's appointment with me? Hadn't been feeling well. And they had done some tests. And I was in the room with the oncologist when the oncologist said, you have terminal four lung cancer. And I was there when the oncologist also said, if you do nothing, like no chemo, if you do nothing, you've got eight weeks to live. And if you have chemo, maybe a year. And my father, this creative man that I've mentioned to you earlier, looked at that oncologist and said, you know, I don't like either one of those options. I think I'm going to do something else. And he did, thanks be to God. He ended up living almost 10 months and following a a holistic approach to his treatment and his convalescence. But that taught me, my brothers, the power of real surrender. And here's another one that I had completely wrong. I had completely wrong what surrender was. I thought surrender was quitting. I thought surrender was giving up. I thought surrender was consigning myself to failure. But surrender is something so different, so different. It's what I had done earlier in the story that I mentioned about breaking down in my hotel and crying because I hadn't slept. I didn't know it then, but what I was doing was surrendering, subjugating my will to the eternal will of a God that loves me. That's what I was doing, even if I didn't have words for it in my spiritual walk at that time. And that was a lesson that my father showed me as he dealt with things towards the end of his life. At the very end, he brought my wife and I into a room and said, this was probably a week before he passed away, and he said, no matter what, no matter what happens in these next few days, just remember that I'm still here and that it's still me. My wife and I didn't understand what he meant, but in those last few days, he started seeing things. He started seeing with the eyes of his soul And he started having conversations with people that weren't there, at least that I could see. And my father was sharp as a tack. But he began to see with the eyes of his soul. That was the last lesson of sonship that he taught me. But as St. Paul says, we put away childish things when we become men. And so what I'd like to share with you are three lessons of fatherhood that I hope the Holy Spirit gives you something from. And again, even if you don't have kids, remember we're hardwired to be providers, to be stewards, to be caretakers. All the things that you've heard from the speakers before, whether you feel that way or not, that's part of your nature. That's how we participate in providence. And so I'd like to share with you three lessons of fatherhood for me. So this is not a Catholic image. <laughs> I, I, I think you probably get that. This is the tapestries in the altar in the Pacific Palisades in Los Angeles at the Self-Realization Temple. Okay? They're, all, they're each about six feet tall. This is a pretty significant um, altar. My wife, who has her own incredible story, I, I hope you all one day get to interact and meet with her, but she came from a ton of brokenness. She was homeless for a period of time, sexual abuse, 
all kinds of trauma. Parents on both sides divorced and married three times over. She came from a lot of trauma. And when we met, she wasn't Catholic. She had no faith. She was completely unchurched. But she just wanted to be wherever I was. And so as our kids started coming up, I would take them to Mass, and she was finding her way in the world spiritually. And again, we're in L.A., so there's lots of flavors of this in Los Angeles. And one of the places was this beautiful self-realization temple right on the ocean, beautiful garden, incredible space. And she would go there to meditate while I took the kids to Mass. And one day, she looked up at this temple where they go in to do whatever it is they do. And I say that with full respect. I have no idea what they do in that temple. Um, But she went up to this temple and said, I want to check it out. There was like a glint off the roof. You could see it in the sun. And she walked up there. And she walked into this temple and looked at this tapestry. And it was at that moment that she had what she describes today as a mystical encounter with Jesus Christ. Because her first thought was, wait a minute, I've got Gandhi, Paramahansa Yogananda, some other people I don't know. But wait a minute, Jesus is there too. And her thought, in her mind, she asked, what are you doing here? And at that moment, Jesus spoke to her heart and said, welcome. I see you've met my friends, but you're looking for me. That began a transformation in her life where she ran home. And she said, you Catholics, you say that Jesus is in that church. You say Jesus is in the tabernacle. Every time we drive by a church, you make me do the sign of the cross. I want to go see Jesus. I'm in love with Jesus. She fell in love with him. And that lesson of fatherhood for me was the centrality of loving Christ because my brothers, I may have known the rubrics and the missiles and the catechism and the difference between a vigil mass and a monstrance, and she didn't but she was in love with Jesus, head over heels in love with him. And in that love, it showed me all of the things that I lacked, despite the richness of our faith, how much I didn't have. That was a lesson of fatherhood for me in God's telling me his story of providence. You heard Matt mention that we work with homeless families in Los Angeles. So I've got, as I mentioned, five kids. But if you count all the kids we walk with in a company, there's probably about 200 kids. And it's been such a beautiful experience to be involved in this. Obviously, homelessness is something very close to my wife's heart, which is why this ministry started 20 years ago. But throughout all this, and considering the challenges of homelessness and the challenges of all the social issues that we have to contend with, We've heard them, the lack of respect for human life and the dignity of the human person, racism, all of these social ills, the ill treatment of the immigrant, the ill treatment of the prisoner, all of these things are not things to be solved. These are things to be healed. And the only way that we heal is in a relationship. That's the way that God set it up relational above transactional. And this is me. I'm raising my hand. I thought, well, I give money here and I do this and I now go to church and I'm ordained. I'm a deacon. I'm doing my part. But how many relationships was I missing? You know, people ask us, well, tell me about the work that you do with the homeless. And I say, well, we accompany homeless families. Well, what does that look like? I don't know, like when your cousin calls you, what does that look like? 
when your brother calls you? What does that look like? That's how it looks. It's a relationship. All of our problems, all of our problems in this country have relational solutions, not transactional ones. And I'm the first one to raise my hand at how much I've missed this opportunity, this opportunity. The last lesson from adulthood for me in the providence of God was my first trip to Africa. Anybody been to Africa? Yeah, we got a bunch of people? Okay, good. It blew me away. I'd been blessed to be uh, able to visit 40 different countries by the time I was probably, I don't know, 35 or so, and I'd lived in a number of them, but I'd never been to Africa. And a buddy of mine from my then parish was Ghanaian. He was from Ghana. And he said, I, you know, I go back every year. And I said, you know, the next time you go, let me know and I'll go with you because I'm that guy. I'm the guy who says, let me know and I will go. And he gave me a week's notice or something. And here we were on a plane to London and then down to Ghana. And I remember taking a little car, a little like minibus and, you know, driving 13 hours out into the sticks of Ghana with the vehicles that were taking us there getting progressively smaller till we finished the last part on foot. And we walked into this village, and my friend said, I'd like for you to meet the elder of that village. I'd like for you to meet the elder. And I was like, sure, I'd love to meet the elder. And this man walked out, and he welcomed us into his home. Home had dirt floors. There was nothing else around, people everywhere. The poorest, happiest people you've ever met, okay? I'll just say that at the outset. But we walked into this man's home, and he said, would you like a libation? I'd never heard that. A lib- I mean, I knew what a, I thought I knew what a libation was, but he was offering me a libation. I said, well, it's hot. I'm thirsty. Who can't use a beer or whatever it is that you drink? Yeah, sure, I'll take a libation. And this man went into his cupboard, a little box that he picked up off the ground, and he took one bottle from it, and it was half full. And he got out four glasses, and he poured all four of those out. And it was me, my friend, and him, and automatically I'm doing math going, wait, there's three of us. There's four glasses. And this man who had absolutely nothing took his bottle of whatever it was that we were drinking, poured that first glass, held it out in front of him, and dumped it into the dirt. And he said, that first one, that's for God. Blew me away. Wow. And it taught me the whole idea of first fruits. We hear that biblical language and we forget what it means. It means giving God the very best that you have, the very best, the first thing, the fullest thing, the best. That's what it means. And that is what was taught to me by that man. Understanding properly what providence is also comes with pitfalls, my brothers. And these, this is not meant to be comprehensive because there's many, but there's a number of pitfalls that can oftentimes get in our way as we try to properly understand our role within providence. I did this just for my Latino brothers in the room. Anybody know who this man is? This is Vicente Fernandez, who passed away in 2021. This is basically Mexican Frank Sinatra, okay? To give you a sense of who this is. And he has a very famous song. It's practically the national anthem of Mexico. And the line from that song says, No tengo trono ni reina, ni nadie que me comprenda, pero sigo siendo el rey. 
I don't have a throne or a queen, and nobody gets me, but I'm still the king. It's almost a rallying cry, and part of the reason why in the Latino culture, not just in the Latino culture, though, we have pitfalls like machismo. The idea of taking something good like our natural strength and our natural courage and our natural desire to be protectors and providers, and we deform that to make idols out of respect and control. The antidote to that pitfall, my brothers, is meekness, is meekness, and meekness defined as a bold humility, as a bold humility. St. Teresa of Avila said that humility was living the truth of who you are, the fullness of the truth of who you are, being yourself authentically and truly and honoring and giving that to God as a gift. So machismo is one. Here's one other one. Perhaps you're more familiar with this one. This idea of having what is properly good, an opportunity to go away and be alone, to be in solitude, to pray, to commune with God personally and independent of other people. But then that gets twisted and warped and can become something like what this image is trying to communicate. These are all, in a way, idols. Because that man cave deforms that natural desire for solitude and individual reflection and makes idols out of leisure and out of dissipation. Again, I'm the first guy to raise my hand. I'm the first guy to raise my hand. This is my space. I have all my things. My father-in-law, God rest in his soul, had a whole floor in his house dedicated to his things. Nobody ever set foot down there. Nobody has set foot down there. And the last one, my brothers, which we're experiencing a lot right now, is broadly in the category of lesser gods. And here I would speak specifically about the polarization that is happening in this country and, frankly, in the church. This idea of left or right. Pope Francis just this week said the gospel is not an ideology. The gospel is not an idea. The gospel is about an encounter with a person and the transformation that can happen in our hearts when we do. So we don't look left or right we're called to look up. And if you ever get into a situation where you're interacting with somebody who might not share your political views, and there's a lot who don't, this might be a way to answer that question because we're not called to be saved by political parties or political ideology. No matter how close what they're saying aligns to the gospel, it's great that they're close, but that's not where salvation comes from. I'd like to close with three practices that have been meaningful to me in my life. You've heard a little bit about this already from some of the previous speakers that I hope can be helpful to you in this understanding properly of providence. The first one is remaining in the moment. We've been given the present moment to live in. That's the only moment that's real. And the easy way to think about this is if you spend time in the past, you're going to be depressed. You spend time in the future, you're going to get anxious. In a way, those are God's guardrails to focus in on the present because that's where God is, in the present moment. So whenever you get anxious, like you're about to talk to 3,000 people, 
Focus on the moment because that's where God lives. This is a picture who's, by the way, also been mentioned today, St. Maximilian Kolbe at his desk. St. Maximilian Kolbe ran a media company in the, in the Second World War in Poland, essentially, and this is him at his desk doing a bunch of different busy work. But I promise you that what he was doing there was treating that desk as an altar, not letting a single opportunity go by, no matter how mundane, to make an offering of that thing to God for the conversion of sinners and for the kingdom to be established. I'm sure he didn't miss those opportunities. I have missed many. Do we treat our desk, our work as an altar, the Zoom call? Are we offering up the people on the other side of that video conference. And then just last week, some of you may have heard, we lost one of our bishops in Los Angeles. Our auxiliary bishop, David O'Connell, was murdered, was murdered, just shot and killed. A man of deep prayer and deep compassion for the poor, a man who frankly befuddled a lot of people because he was so in love and available to the pro-life movement and at the same time so involved and available to justice issues. My friend Gloria Purvis remarks all the time, she's super pro-life, but whenever she brings up pro-life issues around her friends that are more active in areas of racism and that kind of thing, they kind of back off. And you know what? The same thing happens in reverse when she's talking to her pro-life friends and says, you know, we need to do something about what's going on with incarceration, what's going on with the scourge and the sin of racism, those people are like, well, man, that might not be for me. This is the kind of guy, who's a real deal, Bishop David O'Connell, and he passed away. And the last tip, to put it that way, is to cultivate a servant's heart. Cultivate a servant's heart. A heart, my brothers, just like Mary's. Brothers, I pray that you live out your participation in God's providence with boldness and humility of heart. And through the intercession of our Blessed Mother, the Immaculate Heart, God bless every single one of you. I love you, and may Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.